If it wasn't for people, business would be easy. But the reality is that we aren't just cogs in a machine. We're people with social dynamics that can't just be ignored. Deke Copenhaver knows this better than most. As the former Augusta, Georgia mayor for over nine years, Deke managed to bring people together on both sides of the racial divide to secure 67% of the vote. Deke is not simply a politician. He's the change maker. Engage at the grassroots level within your businesses. Don't put yourself in a silo or an ivory tower. I'm Mike Kading, and welcome to Zero to Unicorn, where we dive into the lives of the unique visionaries among us that have made a billion-dollar impact in the world. Dick Copenhaver has done some incredible things. The former Augusta, Georgia mayor for over nine years, when elected, got 67% of the vote. In a world of such divided politics, to have someone that actually brought people together I asked Deke to start off by giving us some perspective on what it was like being mayor. You know, somebody said, well, you're in the belly of the beast. But it's but it's interesting to me. It was it was challenging. It was very challenging. I was 38 years old when I was first elected. And I told somebody recently, I'm like, yeah, it was really good to be young and naive. He said, no, 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 man. You are naive. You just weren't jaded. And at 56, I hope I'm not now. But it really, you know, I didn't, you don't know what you don't know. I'd never been involved in politics. And so basically, I did not know. So uh, I went through a program called Leadership Georgia in 2004. Oldest statewide leadership program in the nation. So my graduation weekend, we had our third current or former elected official go under indictment. And so it's like, and it was black, white, um, male, female, Democrat, Republican. And I'm like, man, we got to do better than that. Because I was going all over the state and people were like, what's wrong with Augusta politics? So when our former mayor was appointed Southeast Regional Director for Housing and Urban Development. Yeah, I'm 37 at the time. I'm like, okay, I'm going to run for that. And so I was called in the back room and told by business people that I liked and still like, you know, you'd be a great candidate, but you haven't paid your dues. Yeah. No young people will vote for you because they don't vote. No old people will vote for you. And no black people will vote for you. And I'm sitting there going, but having spent years engaged at the grassroots level, I knew that people were so ready for new leadership. Plus, I'm extremely competitive. So I said, look, I'm going to run and I'm going to win whether you guys are candidates in the race or not. I'm like, because I've run a small business. I've chaired boards of directors. You know, I've run a nonprofit. What is the difference about those leadership positions and being mayor? I just don't see why is there a difference in politics? So, you know, the older generation thought I wouldn't get 6% of the vote. I was the only candidate to go into the general election in 2005 with zero endorsements. And I'm like, well, all I care about is if I get the endorsement of the people. 
But the good thing I'll tell you, Mike, is that because I flew under the radar screen and the vast majority of people thought I couldn't win, you know, I didn't get a lot of vocal support or anything from, I didn't go kiss the ring, but then I didn't know anybody anything either. That's so cool. Let's explore that story a little bit deeper. I asked Dink, what did he do differently that got him elected without the backing of these powerful people? Yes, well, I'll tell you, I, I say that, you know, that I was not the chosen one of the powerful people in town, but there was an 80-year-old, 80-something-year-old former congressman who was a great friend of mine and looked for new leadership and would really help cultivate it. So he was the first person to write a letter to the editor on my behalf. He worked my campaign like nobody's business. But other than that, it was a bunch of 20 and 30-something-year-olds who had no clue how to run a political campaign. We just had fun. And I mean, the energy around the campaign, and it was like, hey, man, if you want to go, if you want to change the city of Augusta, you're welcome to join us. Come on in. But the, the enthusiasm and the energy around the game, around the campaign, just drew people in. And hey, something not politics as usual, a very positive campaign where we're not saying bad things about other opponents. It was, I majored in political science in college, and I'm like, okay, this is my experiment in democracy. If I provide somebody with an alternative to politics as usual, I bet they'll go for it. And they did. That's awesome. But how does someone convey the message of being fun and different and not just politics as usual? So my, my campaign coordinator, I told him from the get-go, I'm like, this is going to look like no other campaign. Ironically, eight days after I announced, we lost my mother-in-law. And so I went to my, my wife and my father-in-law and I said, look, if you guys aren't good with this, I'll back out right now. And my mother-in-law's name was Kitty. They said, no, Kitty would say that you need to do it, that the city needs you. But I told him, I laid, set the tone, which is part of what good leadership does from the get-go. I said, I'm never going to go negative. I don't want this to look like any other campaign. I want it to be fun. So he came up with the idea. So he's like, okay, I saw somebody in Alaska do something like this. Let's put you in a schoolroom with a bunch of kindergartners. Just put your name on the board Copenhaver and asked him to pronounce your name. And so it was like, um, you know, Deke Alligator. And I mean, just the kids are dying laughing. And one gets like, Duke Coconut. And I'm like, you know, it doesn't really matter that they can't pronounce my name. What matters is that I care about their future. And I mean, that was, that was honest and heartfelt. So, for the first few years in office, I mean, to the younger generation, I was mayor alligator. I wondered, during the campaign, were there points where Deke felt like he may not actually make it? Or did he think that we got this? I needed to know what his experience was like. I 
you know, I, I studied these things, and I, I felt in my heart I would win. <laughs> there was a local shock jock that said, oh, you know, he's just running to get his name out there so he can run for Congress. And yeah, I was like, do you think, you know, my I just lost my mother-in-law. We're grieving the loss of a loved one. Do you think I would actually put myself through this if I didn't believe I was going to be successful? You know, I'm like, I put myself and my family through it. So I always thought that I would be successful. And I mean, you know, maybe that's just being young or, but, but I was confident. And I think that confidence came across to voters. And I'm like, look, if I can't run on a proven track record of leadership or my vision for the city, I shouldn't be running at all. You know, that those are my reasons because I've studied city different demographics. At that point in time, in 2005, we were losing population and our tax base was shrinking. And I'm like, okay, if those trend lines were allowed to continue, you know, and we've got an aging population as a city, it's not going to be good. And I'm like, okay, well, if I know that and I don't try to do anything about it, that's on me too. So I'm like, I, you know, at some point my generation was going to have to stand up and try to change things. So I'm like, you know, why not now? I don't know a lot about political campaigns, but with former podcast guests like Philip Stutz, I do know that they're grueling and arduous. I asked Dick, what was it like during the day-to-day -day of his campaign? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was it was nuts, but I do everything 150%. So, I mean, I just worked harder than any other candidate. And my team, you know, being 20 and 30-something-year-olds, they had having fun and being bought into the mission, you know, it made the work a lot easier. But just to see how we were connecting with the community, and it's, Augusta had a history of racial politics, but I was being invited into two black churches every Sunday and attending the, I mean, the entire service on my 38th birthday, which became came between the general and the runoff. I wanted a runoff. I was in church services that Sunday on my 38th birthday for six hours, two different churches. But it's like, but I heard, particularly in the black community, they're like, you know, white politicians come to our churches during campaign season, and then they never come back. And I'm like, I would not trust anybody that did that. So, I mean, two, I mean, I continued on yeah, during nine years in office going to those church services having that presence in the African-American community. But it's, you know, you got to live it and you got to walk it like you talk it to actually really bring people on board and see, because a lot of people pay things lip service, particularly in politics. And I'm like, oh, I'm tough on crime. No new taxes, blah, 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 yada, 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 yada. I'm like, I've heard that all the time. And I'm going to keep you I'm going to stop this from happening. I'm like, don't tell me what you're going to stop from happening. Tell me what you're going to make happen. 
That's so true. Often you hear about this sort of thing, words tumbling out of people's mouths that are meant to sort of just get your vote. There's nothing behind it. Here's the difference. Like deep, if you actually deliver and be there every week supporting people, even after you don't need their vote, that speaks volumes. I will tell you something, Mike, and this is for your listeners and viewers, you know, I was diagnosed in April with esophageal cancer. So, you know, it's cancer diagnosis is scary, but my former executive assistant is now chief of staff at the Georgia Cancer Center here. And so when I got the official diagnosis, I'll tell you, going back to being competitive, first thing I said is, okay, I'm going to make you a deal. I want no prognosis. I want to know no odds. I don't even want to know a stage because the treatment is going to be the same no matter what. And I don't want to be worrying about those things, but just tell me what I need to do. So when I got the diagnosis, I went to my, one of my best friends, Al Dallas, and said, okay, what can I do to be proactive with this and to help use my platform to help the community? He said, we've got the annual cancer walk coming up in three weeks. Why don't you form a team? And I'm like, perfect. I can be proactive. We did it. We set as a goal to raise $10,000. In three weeks, we raised $53,000. And the goal for the cancer center was 75. They hit 115. But I said, it just shows you that leading through love and compassion is sustainable because I'm nine years out of office, but that sea of goodwill and all those, that grassroots engagement that I did and I've done out of office too, that sea of goodwill was still there and allowed for us to blow away our projections. But the cool thing to me is, you know, I'm blessed to be able to afford the best cancer care and I'm cancer free now, which is a miracle in and of itself. But that money, the cancer center provides world-class care to people, a lot of people who can't afford it. So those monies coming from the community going to take care of people that can't afford the same level of care as me. But if that's not proof positive that leading for love and compassion is sustainable, leading through fear and intimidation, which I, by the way, do not believe that fear and intimidation, even if it gets your desired outcome and you get production out of your team in business or wherever, that's not leading, you know, and it's not sustainable. I could not agree with Deke more on this point. In a little bit, we'll dive more into all of that, but... Hey, it's Mike. Let's beat the banks at their own game. Traditional banks don't have great interest rates, but they charge businesses like Norhart higher rates and they keep all the profits. Why don't we cut out the middleman and connect directly, thus leaving more for both of us? Invest with us and earn fantastic interest rates. To learn more, visit norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com and click on invest. So if you're looking to grow your returns, then why not join Norhart Invest today and get more than you ever could at a bank? 
This is an offering by Norhart Invest. Investments can only be made through the Norhart Invest website. For more information, including the offering circular, please visit norhart.com forward slash invest. Before we do, I wanted to ask Deke, on that day he got elected, what was it like for him? What was going through his head? So it's so funny because I just had a young reporter reach out to me this week and say, I don't know if you remember I was there that night, but that night I could t- we went out back and just had a conversation and I could tell you were real. But I remember one reporter saying, because he got a picture of a huge crowd the night of the runoff and a lot of very young, very bought-in people, they were like, when it was announced that you had won, it was like a team had won a championship. I mean, just the roar in the crowd was freaking amazing. So the energy in the room was incredible. But I'll tell you this, Mike, it's funny. So because I was running to fulfill an unexpired tour term, so all along, I didn't even think about it. I'm telling my wife, yeah, we'll take some time away, you know, when we get done with this and everything. Well, because the term had not expired, I had to take office the next week. So I was elected on a Tuesday and was sworn in the following Monday. So no real transition period, no nothing. It was just drop me in the middle of the deep end. The first thing we did, though, is I'm like, I think it's the right thing to do when we're perceived as a divided community to bring people together in prayer. So we started a prayer breakfast my first morning. So this past Tuesday was the 18th anniversary. So big churches, small churches, houses of worship around the community. So, you know, people didn't believe that was going to keep going on for 18 years. But, you know, had a, to set the tone, had a prayer breakfast. And then I walked right into committee meetings. I just, you know, started learning but I always say I'm I'm an experiential learner. So it's best, I mean, I learn best if you just start me in the deep end. And that was, so my first commission meeting was the first meeting of the body was two weeks to the day after I was elected. So I say that we have bad racial politics here. So things got so heated in that first meeting that we had sheriff's deputies have to escort people out and i'm like okay man well i've got myself in the middle of something but i'm like it's you know you you have to be somebody who's focused on not just being a change maker but being a peacemaker too so get this deke has just been dropped into this very divided environment right But in order for him to make some sort of meaningful progress for the community, first he had to find a way to bridge the gap. How does someone even begin to do that? I I think I had an advantage. And I, you know, this is, I I wouldn't have run if I didn't think I was the best candidate. And part of the reason why I felt like I was the best candidate, I ran a land trust for four years prior to running for mayor. So, nonprofit land conservation organization. We handled the green space program for the city. 
So it was a land buying program through state grants for open space set-asides. So I spent four years doing that, and at least on that one issue, I built consensus within the body. So I was young. They knew the play. I knew the players. They trusted me, you know, because I had worked with them for four years going ahead. So that would, that was definitely an advantage. You know, I was not somebody totally new. I was totally new to the majority of the public, but the elected officials knew me and knew that I was able to help develop what was the highest regarded of green space program in the, in the state. So I had success developing a program that brought positive attention to Augusta. This is a great baseline of connection. And I love that it goes to show the importance of building relationships. In fact, it's a thing that got Deke to where he is today. But what were some of those more contentious issues that Deke faced during his time in office, especially at the beginning of his journey? I think our race-based politics was more at the elected level. I mean, we were, I focused for nine years on healing the racial divide. But so, usually, if if you were going to let go of a black department head, you'd have to let go of a white one, or vice versa. We were split five white commissioners, five black commissioners. So it was always this trading. So that was what happened in that first meeting, was the white commissioners wanted to fire our female black director of engineering, and the black commissioners wanted to fire the fire chief who was white. So that's what led to all this tension. But it would, but so being young and naive, so we had not been on a retreat in years and years and years. So that January, I took our commission on a retreat. And then, you know, the, the next month or so, I did diversity training, which, you know, the press loved their... Oh, you're going to sing Kumbaya? I'm like, no, we've got racial issues and within the body. And it's generally older elected officials who have never been through diversity training. So this is not to, you know, say, let's go get together and sing Kumbaya. It's a teachable moment to bring in a professional because corporate America does that. Why would a local government die? You know, and because... A big part of what I did, too, was so many commissioners, I felt like, had some of them had never set foot into other districts other than their own or the area of the city where they lived. So I did bus tours to every district in the city. So we all got on a bus, went around. It was kind of a bonding experience, but it gave the commission that the commissioner that represented that district, the the you know the opportunity to point out what what was going right and what was good, but to also point out the difficulties, so that when the way to address those issues came before the body, everybody had had a real world experience. Going, okay, they couldn't just say, well you know, they're making that worse than it is, because they had been there and seen it. I'm a huge Martin Luther King Jr. 
fan. I mean, he's a Europe mod. But I, I'm a visual thinker. And so that, I mean, that animosity and wrecker was so bad my first year at office. So it's like every night on the 6 o'clock news, dysfunctional racially divided commission, dysfunctional racially divided commission, front page in the newspaper every day. And I just got sick of it. So I thought about the Million Man March. And I'm like, okay, that was such a powerful vid visual. We need to do something like that here. So I asked my executive assistant, I said, do me a favor and to the email listen, you know, I'll get into some of the issues we ran in with the prayer breakfast later on. But we there was we got accused of um violating the separation of church and state by the Freedom from Religion Foundation. No city resources were ever expended. It was hosted by the places of worship, but that was later on, but I said, just to ask people our meetings were Tuesdays. Just ask people to come down to the municipal building and pray and tell them, I would like to see that we could join hands around the entire building. Because I figured if we do that, that's going to be the front page of the paper and that's going to be the story on every six o'clock newscast. So I just put out the call, maybe young and naive, but with that, I'm like, what a cool visual that would be. And, you know, what kind of hope would that provide to the general public when they're seeing, you know, in this building, just contention every day, the visual flipping the script on it, and to see people from all walks of life joining hands around it, praying. So just put it out, didn't know what to expect. We had enough people that could have surrounded the building twice. So some people like, Oh, that was a political gamble. I'm like, there was nothing polit. There's nothing political about what I do. You know, that was just me thinking, what is a good message to show unity to the community? And so that was the story on the six o'clock news. And that was the front page of the paper, you know, the next day. Let's take a moment here to appreciate Deke's predicament. Deke has a divided commission. He's trying to inspire change in the face of intense divide. How does someone get out of bed every morning, ready to walk into that tense atmosphere day after day? Well, Deke does it with the same tenacity displayed by our other visionary guests. He's programmed with a can-do attitude. And at some point, you'd hope that this would rub off on others in the commission. Perhaps they may even get so sick and tired of their own politics that they want to see change themselves. Then they were resistant. They, they didn't, I mean, I was new and I was different, but I, I tell people all the time, you can't fake sincerity. And so when people turn the campaign, my first campaign, you know, when people would say bad things about me, particularly untrue things, there would be, you know, people in the community that would go nuts on them. And I asked my campaign guy, I'm like, why, why do people get so upset 
when people say bad things about me. He said, you're a natural leader. He said, you lack guile. There's no walls. People just connect with you. But I think they, they, it was different. There was some pushback. But at least they knew I was sincere in trying to do what I was doing. And I think there was some, okay, a wait-and-see mentality. Because I ran in 05, but I had to turn around and run in 06 as well. Because, you know, I was filling an uninspired term. Well, in 06, I won with 67% of the vote. So it was a landslide. So then I think they got the message, we got to work with this guy. You know, and it was, so we're a weird government. I mean, it's almost like, so we have 10 commissioners, then two of them are super district commissioners that represent that. I mean, it's just crazy. The two gentlemen that, so it was white super district, black super district majority, but they, they were older and had both served in government before. So they took me aside, you know, they wanted a meeting with me the January after I got elected for the second time. And they said, you know, for this thing to work, we should have a Monday morning meeting of the mayor pro tem, the city administrator, the two super district commissioners, the mayor and our legal counsel to go through our agenda and work through any problems that we may have ahead of time. So they said, you're going to need our help. I don't know how much at times they really even liked each other. What? But I think they did more so than they let on. But so, you know, I'm 39 years old, but that building trust and them knowing I sincerely was trying to improve the city and that in that first year, yeah, I went in a runoff the first year, but my second election, you know, I ran against three other candidates. There was no runoff. And it's funny, I tell you, you know, Martin Luther King is a hero of mine. So every one of my elections, Augusta was majority African-American. So in 2006, I was running against three African-American candidates and still won with 67% of the vote. But I told people, I'm a living part of Martin Luther King's dream because I was judged by the voters and by the citizens of Augusta based on the content of my character and not the color of my skin. Hey, it's Mike. Passive income is one of this year's hottest buzzwords, but what is it? Well, passive income is when the elite make money and the rest of us sleep. Here at Norhart, we decided to open up this opportunity to everyone by giving you the chance to invest with us and earn fantastic interest rates without doing a thing. To learn more, visit norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com and click on invest. So if you're looking to grow your returns, then why not join Norhart Invest today and see what you can build towards. This is an offering by Norhart Invest. Investments can only be made through the Norhart Invest website. For more information, including the offering circular, please visit norhart.com forward slash invest. Which is pretty freaking cool. So I quizzed Dee. 
as he looks at Georgia today, how much further does he think the state has to go to heal those racial divides long term? You know, it's still there, but I think we've come a lot further. And, you know, politicians in both parties play the race card to their benefit. And there is, you know, there are racial overtones in politics right now that I don't think are good, that are kind of scary to me with some of the stuff, you know, on the conservative side. But I view Georgia, so our governor, Brian Kemp, is a good friend of mine. So he is supported. He was reelected last year with an overwhelming majority. But I think part of that and Brad Raffensperger, our Secretary of State, both Republicans who refused to take part, I mean, despite being badgered by President Trump in trying to overturn the elections. I've talked to Democrats, never voted for Republicans, but voted for those two guys because of it. So people say Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm like, so I view us as a purple state, and I don't think purple's bad. So both of our senators in Washington are Democrats. Our republic, our governor's Republican. You know, our legislate legislature, predominantly Republican. Most statewide held offices. But I'm like, I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I think that sort of reflects diversity. And I'm like, I'm sure there were people that, you know, voted for for um, our two senators who were Democrats that also voted for our, our governor who's a Republican, which is my generation. I vote the candidate. I don't vote the party. And I think that's the majority of white people in America feel. So I think Georgia personally has come a long way and it doesn't seem like when I look at other states around the culture wars are as bad here as they are in other states which to me that's regressive the culture wars I'm like haven't we moved beyond that you know as a nation so I think overall the political health in Georgia it's not not bad. I mean, the temperature of it, it doesn't feel like, you know, when you go to the Capitol, it just, it's, it just seems calmer. And I don't know because I don't live in other states and I don't trust everything I see in the news. You know, there are bipartisan efforts going on in Washington that largely don't get reported. But just being on the ground here in Georgia and just to see nine years out of office, and I still, you know, have amazing support at the grassroots level. So I still, I think, at least in Augusta, because there's still can be some racially tinged politics, but I think the mindset at the grassroots level has progressed tremendously, and I'm proud of that, and hopefully had a part in fostering that. As it got to the end of Deke's last term, I wondered... What was the experience of leaving office like? What went through his head during this time? So my last year in office, I'm like, man, this is going to be easy. I'm going to coast to the finish. So we had the ice storm of the century in 2014. So I I was speaking 
for the Phillips Healthcare Medicare, the Phillips Healthcare Mega Conference in Orlando, Florida, in February. So, we had Atlanta had been hit by blizzards, and the mayor there, Kasim Reed, and our governor, both friends of mine, um, Governor Nathan Deal, both kind of got caught flat-footed. So, I get done speaking. And my executive assistant comes up and goes, man, all flights back into Atlanta are canceled. And I'm like, uh, we're getting back. So we managed to get back just under the wire. The fire chief came by my house at 11 o'clock that night. And I signed off on the state of emergency. The next morning, I'm on the Weather Channel Live with Jim Cantori. But I'm sitting there going, you know, leadership is about being there with your people. Plus, you know. Mayor Sons on Beach in Florida as storm of a century destroys Augusta. So it was not the easiest of years, but it's it's funny, you know, to to leave office at forty seven years old, it was it was strange. It was an adjustment. Because and people saying, Did you miss the politics? I'm like, No. But I was down there every day with the city staff, and appreciated what they did. You know, so I said, I miss the people I work with, but people said, we need to make you mayor for life, and you need to be a benevolent dictator. And I'm like, no, no, there's time for change. And I'm like, a benevolent dictator only works if the dictator is, in fact, benevolent. And I'm not really seeing too many of those out there. So I will say it was hard to watch, you know, just because I'm still in town. I didn't leave town. And just some of the bad political stuff that went on. But I'm like, you know, once I'm gone, I'm gone. I I help the community in a lot of different ways. But I never once publicly was going to comment on the job that it's like presidents used to do. They didn't comment on the job of the person that came in after them. So I've, I've honored that. Our current mayor, who was elected last year, strongly supported him. Great guy. So I've stayed involved. But leaving office at that age, and I didn't do it for a career in politics. It's almost like I'm a big fan of George Washington. They offered him an opportunity to be king. He walked away. And I'm like, that was the type of leader I wanted to be. And I, I honestly think my calling is way, my geotag is not just on Augusta. I've got a difference to make in a lot of different places. You know, everything I focus on is bringing people together on a common ground. And I think heading into 2024, a lot of people are very concerned. They think it's going to be a very dark year. So I'm a founding partner with Starts With Us, a major nonprofit focused on bridging divides in America and getting us away from extreme polarization. We've got over 3 million connections across all social media platforms now. I mean, the work that we're doing, Citizen Solutions is a new program we're doing, working with citizens with different political views around gun issues or whatever, trying to develop consensus that can then be put into policy. It's important work, but you know, 500 organizations 
doing stellar work. There's braver angels. There's the um, there's the future caucus in Congress that these young legislators are getting bipartisan legislation passed, but almost none of this is making it through to the mainstream media. So I'm like, I want to hold a light up to that and give people hope because some people are just wanting to check out on our nation. And I'm like, don't put your trust in politicians to fix things. This is up to us. We need to be active civically. We need to take part in our communities because real change starts at the local level. So don't think Washington is broken and I can't, I, there's nothing I can do because that's just not the case. And, you know, I hope that my story of surviving cancer, no side effects or anything, I, I hope I can be a, a source of hope and inspiration to people. You know, you don't have to give in to the darkness. You know, as humans, we're so hardwired to enjoy the gossip, the challenges, the drama that goes on around us. This creates an environment that the news media loves to exploit and in turn amplifies the negativity around us. With this in mind, I asked Deke, how do you amplify the positive in a way that overcomes that human bias? We have a local restaurant doing this Christmas program. Forget that they've got like three seatings a night lying around the block. So my wife and I, another couple are sitting there hugely diverse crowd you know that's decorated beautifully i'm like this is what people want to be a part of there's a reason taylor swift is so freaking popular because going to her concerts is a communal moment and it feels good so i think people will go to the alternative if they're provided with it but i've told the people in the bridging moment we need to provide that on scale it's like, like I say, the Million Man March. You know, I want America, as I did on a micro level, seeing people come pray around the municipal building. I want to see people come together on scale. How do we provide those platforms? Because I know, particularly with the news media, I know so many people that have just tuned it out. I mean, they don't, you know, they listen to satellite radio. You know, they don't. They don't watch local newscasts. So I think a lot of people, we did a poll with Starts With Us that showed 87% of Americans are sick of hyperpartisan politics. So it's, why don't we provide the 87% what they want? You know, that just seems smart to me. When I, when I was in land conservation, I came from a background in real estate and development. So... So at that point, like 70% of people that live in golf course communities don't play golf. They just buy to back up to the open space. And so talking to developers, I'm like, why don't we incur the cost of doing a, you know, a golf course, which is not as good for the environment, but 70% of people would rather have walking trails, you know, but it's like, but we assume, because we've always built golf courses, that's what people are going to buy. And I'm like, no, no, no. You know, if so, I provided an alternative to politics as usual. My book, my my editor at Forbes 
was like, you're going to have to target a demographic. I'm like, I don't do that. I'm like, that's the problem. I go for the 87%. And I don't get distracted by the vocal minority on either end. So six months in, he goes, man, this is really going to appeal to a wide variety of people. I'm like, yeah, because I'm speaking to the people that don't feel like they have a voice. And even with my damaged voice, if I can be a voice for them, but encourage them, speak up, you know, let's join together. There's more good people that want to make a difference in the country, that want to see our country succeed. All of this painting this dystopian future, I'm like, I saw where a presidential candidate, who shall remain nameless, said he was going to bring America back from hell. I'm like, okay. I'm eating in that restaurant last night. I'm like, this doesn't necessarily feel like hell to me. You know, look at look at what people are dealing with in Israel, you know, in the Ukraine. And to say that America is hell, you know, we're the greatest country in the nation. And I'm like, that's just, that's wrong to me. That's very misleading. But some people, you know, believe whatever they hear from out of the mouths of politicians. Somebody told me at a speaking engagement the other day, they said, you say things that no politician says. I'm like, well, because I'm not a politician and I never was. But I said, but I'm comfortable and confident saying that because I don't exist in the silo. I'm out there connecting at the grassroots. And I'm like, I'm trying to provide hope and spiritual nourishment for people because they want it. They need it. You know, so I'm trying to provide the product because I believe in it. I've lived it. That people want. People want light. And we need to create more of it or reflect more of it. Finally, I posed Deke the following question on behalf of both political leaders and business leaders. What tips would you give them to help bridge the divide between us? I would say don't don't be misled by the vocal minority because I saw that happen in office a lot. I would have commissioners say, my phone line's blowing up on this. I'm like, how many calls did you get? I got 10. I'm like, we have a city of 200,000 people and you're going to let 10 angry people you know, effectively bully you into making a decision that's not in the best interest of the vast majority of the people you serve. But I think in businesses, you can do that. There can be a tendency to let the squeaky wheel get the grease. But I'm like, you know, that's like giving in to your kids every time they threw a tantrum. You know, what kind of a kid child are you going to raise? But really, you know, Engage at the grassroots level within your businesses. Don't put yourself in a silo or an ivory tower. You know, you need to have a presence with the people you serve. They still need to respect you, but don't think that the vocal minority is prevailing public opinion in a business or in a community, because I guarantee you it's not. That is a mistake, but to silo yourself is it's just not a good thing but just to engage and to make people feel like their voices are heard and they have a seat at the table in the decision-making process 
you don't. Sometimes it's just being curious and listening and people feeling like they have a voice, you know, and that they just matter. Deke is one of those salt of the earth people, real authentic, someone who makes connections and he makes things happen that otherwise wouldn't. As Deke mentioned, you can't fake sincerity. And Deke is one of the sincerest people that I have ever met. Spending the time listening and hearing people out, these are the things that helps others feel like they matter. And these are the values that Deke holds high. And that bridges a lot of gaps in and of itself. Thanks for listening. Keep following us on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to recommend us to a friend, we'd like that too.